Good evening, everyone. There we go. <clears throat> it's a red letter day. All the technology worked the first time. That just uh, just makes my heart go pitter patter, right? So, um, well, it's good to see everyone. It's uh, a little bit it's long sleeve weather for a change, and probably going to be that way for a while. So, um, glad you're here this evening. Got out in a little bit of chilly weather, but uh, we're glad you're here. I apologize for a bit of a wasted voice. It's uh, uh, <clears throat> just subject to the weather and the changes and all that goes with it. Well, glad you're here tonight. We're continuing in our study of the survey of church history and Christian denominations. And um, so we're working our way gradually through this. Our topic tonight is the Presbyterian Church. And um, uh, we have a fair amount of Presbyterian churches in our community, and I'll explain a little bit of that um, as we get into our lesson as to part of the reasoning for that. But a fair amount of Presbyterians, and I, I bet there's even a few Presbyterian names you might have heard of before. Um, they are, uh, you know, I jokingly say Presbyterians are not our brothers in Christ, but they are our first cousins. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of the way I think of it. You know, we, we have a, a little bit of a similar heritage in many ways, although distinct in many ways too. But uh, we'll, we'll see some of those as we go through tonight and uh, work our way through. Uh, obviously, you know, we're in November, and that means after tonight, there's two more Sundays left. Next Sunday, we're going to, um, I'll mention, you know, we're in Europe, and we've, we've, we've made stops in lots of, in a few countries. We'll do so tonight in another country. Uh, next week, we'll hit one more country. And then the following week, which will be the end of November, we will do, or last Sunday, November, we'll do kind of a, um, we're going to, tie a nice bow around all this stuff happening in Europe. And then we'll take December off as we head toward all the Christmas stuff. And then we come back in January. Our first night will be January the 8th. We will sort of pick back up. And, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're going to stay in Europe for quite a while yet. We don't get to the Americas um, probably to, for six or eight lessons down the road. So we've got a little, we've got quite a bit yet to do in Europe. With this, because that's that's where the heritage of all these denominations are, and we've got, um, you know, we've we've gone a little ways. If you've been with us through everything, we we talked about church history in general, but eventually that bleeds over into Catholic history and some of the problems with Catholic doctrine. And there's a long list of that, still true today. There's still a long list of Catholic doctrines that are unbiblical. Uh, we talked about the Eastern Orthodox Church again. That's a, that's a part of the, of the realm of Christendom, uh, but uh, we don't have any affinity to their history. I mean, that's a whole different part of the world and a whole different direction. But, so we kind of we talked about them, and they're split with Rome in 1054. And then we kinda, we're going to leave them over here. And then we get back to talking about the Roman Catholic uh, offshoot, which is the Reformation. So our first step into the Reformation was... Uh, Luther, Martin Luther, Germany. The Reformation there, typically, if you're going to pick a date, it's almost always going to be October 31st, 1517, when he nails the 95 Thesis to the Roman Catholic Church door. And remember, the 95 Thesis is a, a written document saying, here's all the things wrong with the Catholic doctrine, and not, not doctrine in its entirety, um, just uh, the idea of selling indulgences. Remember what an indulgence is in the Catholic terminology? It's the ability to buy forgiveness for your sins 
or for the sins of a family member. You could even buy forgiveness for your future sins uh, with an indulgence. And, and Luther, who was himself a Catholic, knew these problems. And as he got to study the Bible, they became very obvious to him. And again, keep in mind, I said there's a couple things to keep in mind about these reformers, and we'll see it again today. They themselves begin as Roman Catholics, ordained priests in the Roman Catholic hierarchy. What changes things, beginning with Wycliffe and working through a long list, is that these men begin to read the Bible. And they start to read the Bible in their own language, and starts, they start to understand it. And it becomes very obvious to not just one or two, but as we'll see, spread across the face of Europe, individuals in leadership positions who says, this doctrine of the church that I'm a member of and a participant as a priest in is not correct. It's not biblical. They were not looking to separate from the church uh, of Rome. They were looking to fix the church of Rome. And so when you talk about the names, and, and again, we'll come back and mention, I hope by the time we finish this, this uh, uh, study, some names will be familiar to you. Some of those men, like Luther, intended just to fix things. Let's have a discussion on fixing things in the Roman Catholic Church. Let's make it more biblical. How can we call ourselves Christians and not follow the Bible, to paraphrase the thought? And once they found out the church had a very strong stand. You either believe what we believe or we will gladly kill you, execute you. It happened to multiplied hundreds, thousands. And we're not done watching the Catholic Church kill people either. We've got a long way along. Next week I'll mention some more of that. And so Luther eventually and his followers just finally said enough. We just can't, we'll, you know, the Lutheran Church begins. It is the state church of Germany today, as, and as it is in probably half a, dozen other, uh, half a dozen other countries in Western Europe. So you got the Luther beginnings, um, a contemporary of Luther's, uh, Ulrich Zwingli from Switzerland, from Zurich, Switzerland. He too, a Roman Catholic priest reading the Bible, says this doesn't match, it doesn't fit, and he, he began some movements. Um, he wrote his, uh, his articles against the Roman Catholic Church, which really was an attack against the broad doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. So you got Luther doing his thing in Germany. Further south, you've got Zwingli in Switzerland doing his thing, and they're both kind of singing the same, the same song. The church is corrupt. The system's wrong. It's not biblical. And that's why I call it the Reformations, plural, of Europe. It's not just one. It's many. You've got John Huss, who's in that equation. He's one of the, he's in, um, Huss is in Prague. He is Czechoslovakian, we would say, or Czech. And he too solved the same problems. He picked up his ideas from John Wycliffe in England. He's a, he's a generation after Wycliffe. Wycliffe was executed, I mean, uh, Huss was executed by the Roman Catholics because he, he dared to raise a voice and say, this is not right. And so you've got a variety of voices, and uh, we're going to get to that. Uh, we looked last week at England and the separation of England from the Roman Catholic Church. You always have to keep in mind what's different about England. Their separation from the Roman Catholic Church was not based upon doctrine or biblical understanding. It was entirely a political move. 
And we're going to kind of take half a step back and remind ourselves of that as we start tonight to look at the Presbyterian Church, which has its foundings in Scotland. And so that will give us uh, a little bit of reference that's important for our discussion tonight and look at the Presbyterians. How many of you know a Presbyterian? Right? Probably a few around for sure. So um, we'll take a look at this and some of the history and some of the distinctions as we finish of the, of the Presbyterian Church and the two primary organizations in our country today and sort of where they stand. But with all that said, as a quick introduction, let's pray. Father, thank you for our day. It's been a beautiful day, a wonderful day to be at church this morning. Thank you for such a wonderful service. So many elements and parts of it, and uh, we're just, uh, again, grateful for your many blessings. Thank you again for the veterans, and I pray that uh, we'll always be mindful of those who are and continue to serve to defend our country and our freedoms and our religious liberties that allows us to plainly teach and preach the truth of the gospel. I pray that you'll bless uh, our evening in this few moments together. I pray that you'll bless each of the classes that are meeting tonight that indeed are doing something that many generations of Christians never had an opportunity to do, to open a Bible in their own language. And tonight we do it with great ease and great um, expectation of being able to read and understand. And I pray that you'll bless our classes tonight around the building. And bless our, our time as we continue to study and appreciate and value those generations before us who stood for what the Bible teaches. May it encourage us uh, to do the same in our generation. In Christ's name we pray. Well, last week, we stepped back into English history a bit and I introduced you to Henry VII as he became king of England in the Battle of Bothworth Field in 1485. This ended the War of the Roses. The War of the Roses was the House of York and the House of Lancaster, both English descendants. It really was a civil war between cousins. And they had fought for 30 years to try and establish which family has the right to be the king. Boy, I'm glad we don't live in that, you know, as bad as politics are now, <laughs> that was pretty bad. Um, and finally, it all came to a head at the Battle of Bothworth Field, and which remains today the one place where more England, more of the English military died. You know, we in America look at Gettysburg as that place for us. More Americans died at the Battle of Gettysburg than anywhere else in our country's history by far. That's the same parallel to the Battle of Bothworth Field. And Henry VII, uh, Henry VII or Henry's was at the time, defeats James. Henry is a Lancaster. James is a York. And uh, they meet on the battlefield. James is killed. Henry is is declared king on the field of that day and from that point forth for quite a while England will be ruled by him and his descendants known as the house of Tudor T-U-D-O-R Henry in order to show peace and try to continue this nation moving forward having come out of this long extended wars of the roses marries a York, a princess of York. Now remember, he's a Lancaster, she's a York. They, their families just spent 30 years fighting against each other, and they get married. It's what I call the English version of Hatfields and McCoys, right? Um, they get married. What's the purpose of their marriage? To bring peace to the country and to allow the country of England to move forward, hopefully to prosperity and peace and all the things that you go for. I am not sure, and he's not here tonight for me to, to poke 
to poke this question anywhere, but we'll ask him sometime. Where is Jim York in this situation? Uh, we all know Jim York here who teaches and preaches. Uh, he has some connection to this group. He talks about the York family of his, of his ancestors who came here from England. So I, I would just about guess somewhere up the line you'd find Jim in that discussion. I suppose it's just a good thing we don't have anyone in our church named Lancaster. I don't know what that means. But, but Henry and Elizabeth marry. And he is coronated king and the beginning there of his rule. He will rule um, until... The early 1500s, he becomes king in 1485. He rules about 13, four, he rules about um, almost 20 years, I suppose. Uh, his son, uh, Henry VIII, and we talked about Henry last week. Henry's the guy who married six wives and had three children through those six wives. You know, wife number one, and then she's divorced, and wife number two, and she's executed, and wife number three. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a soap opera, you know, all over the place. But Henry and his six wives has three children. Henry become, is, continues the lineage of the house of Tudor to be the king of England, and with all expectations that he would do what every king wants to do, have male heirs to continue the lineage of being the king of the country and preserve the family name in this great role in the history of England, Right? And those three children, uh, Mary is the eldest, and then Edward is the next. He has these three children through three different mothers. Uh, Edward is the next, and then Elizabeth is the next. Parliament passed a law that allowed Henry not to just be the king of England, but to be the head of the church of England because they didn't want to deal with the political issues related, or the religious and political issues related to Rome. It was not a doctrinal distinction. It wasn't the Reformation that the continent of Europe had known. It was strictly a political move in order to allow Henry to be the head of the country and the head of the church of England. And today, as it continues, that happened in 1534, Today, in 2023, the monarch of England is still the head of the Church of England and the Anglican um, uh, communion that comes off of that. The Church of England is pretty widespread in many countries, much more so than we think of it here. And again, the church here in our country and in our community would be known as the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church is the American version of the Church of England. But around the world, in many places, the Church of England still is a dominant influence religiously in the culture. Matter of fact, I uh, uh, had an opportunity just recently, our church hosted someone we didn't have speaking here. He's a church planner from Uganda, and he is a Ugandan. And uh, I was able to go out and enjoy a meal with him one evening, just me and him, and talking about some of the things that happened in Uganda. And he says right, he, he was raised, his father was a was a priest in the Anglican church. He, was, he said, I was raised in the Anglican church. He said, until he got, guess what happened? He started reading the Bible. <laughs> and he saw problems there too. And, and he is now working as a, a church planner. And I, I look forward to the day we can have him here because he's quite an exciting guy. But he talked about the influence of the Church of England there in Uganda um, as being something that they're trying to overcome the ignorance of Christianity through the doctrines of the Church of England. So anyway, Henry's three children do become, do become uh, monarchs of England for a while. Uh, after Henry dies, there is an assignment of his son 
Edward VI. But Edward, the problem is Edward is only nine years old. And he's not a very healthy young man. He dies as a 15-year-old or around the age of 15. Um, and so the people behind Edward were making all the decisions. For England, that was quite a change because the people behind Edward making all the decisions were more reform-minded, more Protestant reform-minded. And so a lot of the religious changes in England were happening in the name of Edward. They're called the Edwardian reforms, but they were not of Edward's making. He's just a, a young man, a teenager. He dies. After he dies, the crown then goes to his oldest sister, Mary, who was a very hardline Catholic, and her intention was to get England back in line with the Church of Rome. And to do that, she began instituting strong Catholic laws. And during her five year or so reign, she executed, typically meant burn at the stake, some 300 who opposed her, who stood up for their biblical truth and said, we will not see England turn back Catholic. We will continue to preach and teach the Bible, right? She dies of a tumor. Um, and of course, her rule ends the Catholic persecution of the English Christians. After her death, onto the scene of steps the last of Henry's children, Elizabeth, will be known as Elizabeth I. And she's the, the great queen of England, right, the, who led England to so many great things. She, but she never married, and that obviously creates a problem. But we're going to take that thought and kind of set it aside for a while because we've got to come back to it after the first of the year. So there's Henry, Henry VIII, son of Henry VII. But they had other children. Henry and Elizabeth had other children, uh, one of which is Margaret. Margaret becomes espoused to a Scotchman in the house of Stuart named James, James IV. He remains king. However, he dies at a relatively young age, we would say. They had one son, James V. James V, as king of Scotland, marries a princess from their closest ally. Remember the Scots and the English really have this long-standing feud as countrymen. And the best reference I can give you for that, maybe a movie you've seen, is Braveheart, where William Wallace, the Scot, leads the battles against Edward I, as he's called in the movie Longshanks. And that history of animosity between the Scots and the British, or the English, goes way back. And so Scotland just did not have it in their DNA to make alliances with their closest neighbor, England. Instead, who did they go to? England's arch enemy, France. And so to seal that alignment, James IV had his son, James V, marry a French princess named Mary of, of Guise. And so now you've got a French princess living in Scotland as the queen. What makes that whole con, what makes all this a little more crazy than it already is, is the fact that you've got 
Scotland trying to remain Catholic in a time when much of Europe is turning to Protestant and Reformed thought. Mary, of course, as a French, a lady of the, of the French families, is Catholic. And Scotland at this time is trying to hold on to its Catholic heritage and its Catholic laws instituted in their country. Now, James V, we're headed somewhere with this, I promise. If you hang on to the genealogies, here's where we're going. James V and Mary of Guise have a daughter. Her name is Mary also, Mary Stuart. Mary Stuart uh, is born in, 14, I'm sorry, in 1542, six days after her birth. Six days after her birth, she becomes the Queen of Scotland because her father had, was killed in warfare. With who? The British. So you've got, you can imagine, a country, a, a people, a bit in turmoil. Our king is dead. The, the lineage of the monarchy is passed to a six-day-old girl. What do we do? Well, her mother, Mary of Guise, became, became what in the terminology is called the queen consort. She will have the, the authority of the queen until such a time as Mary becomes old enough to be recognized as the queen. And so the first few years of Mary's life, obviously, she doesn't remember all that tragedy, but she is growing up under the shadow of her mom. But remember, Scotland is in this sort of internal conflict. Are we Catholic? Are we starting to be more Protestant? And as a result, Mary, the mother, sent Mary, the daughter, to her home country, France, to be raised by her aunts and uncles in the monarchy of France. And so sure enough, Mary will spend her life there. She is educated to the best of French culture. She learns the French language. She learns the French way of life. And even more importantly, she learns how to be a queen in a royal court because she watches her family exercise the duties. And so as she grows, and by all accounts is a very likable, energetic, intelligent young lady, as she grows, another marriage proposal is in the making. This time, though, it will be Mary from Scotland to marry the king's son named Francis. He will later become Francis II. They get married. When they get married, Mary is just 16. Her husband is 15. But it seems like that's the path of how this works, right? You... Marry monarchs across boundaries and countries, and somebody's going to retain the power, and even more importantly, the heritage and the lineage continues. However, within a year of their marriage as teenagers, her husband dies. Can't you just hear the conspiracy wheels turning? Why does a healthy 15-year-old boy, now 16, die? Speculations of poisoning, I mean, all the conspiracy theories of those who were trying to trying to engage, you know, the hierarchy of the French household of rulers. And so here is Mary, 
once she was married to Francis, she obtained the title Queen Consort of France. And because, remember, she is a great granddaughter of Henry VII, she has claim to the English throne. So while she was still a teenager, Mary could rightfully be called the Queen of Scotland, the Queen of France, and the Queen of England. That's a pretty powerful position to hand any 17-year-old girl. That's almost as tragic as giving her an unlimited credit card, right? Everything was at her disposal. But after, her, after Francis, her husband, her teen husband, died, she found herself a queen without a home. And France, not sure what to do with her. Scotland, on the other hand, is waiting for her to come back. So a couple years after that tragedy in her life, she returns to Scotland. But she returns to a very different Scotland than she had heard about and probably had kept up with because in those 20 or so years, more of the Reformation teaching of the churches was starting to be accepted. Her mother, trying to retain um, the Catholic influence in Scotland, had done a mediocre and at best job. The lords of Scotland, just like with William Wallace, really had a lot of power. And the lords rose up, and they were more aggressive toward making Scotland Protestant and Reformed and stepping away from Catholic teaching. Why? Again, because there was a biblical teaching. The Bible, of course, by now had been translated into English, as we saw Henry VIII had approved in 1538, the Great Bible. So the Bible was available in English, and the Scots could read that. So there was a movement there. The story of Mary is, is a story that's interesting. We'll have to sort of hit it and run with it, though. Mary will come back to a place where she is the target in the rebellion of the lords. The, the story of Mary is she will, she will marry again. She will marry a, um, a man who is... Uh, a noble in England and a noble in Scotland. He has some heritage in both countries. She will marry him partly because, again, it, it influences her ties to England. She, she thinks, and probably with right, from her perspective, rightly so, that someday she will be the Queen of England and she will unite England and Scotland. So marrying a man of noble birth from England just intensifies that possibility especially if they can have a son. And indeed they do. They do have a son. And so her husband will, her second husband, will father the son that will be called James. And in the lineage of Scotland, he will be James the sixth, will be his ruling place. We're going to leave him there and come back to him in, in probably January, late January also. And I'll come back and review a little bit of this with you. Mary, though, finds herself in quite a turmoil. She's a Catholic queen in a country becoming more Protestant. And so there are conflicts there, political tug-of-wars and who's got the most influence and all sorts of things. She is finally, through a long series of events, arrested, kept in prison, 
but she escapes quite a quite a daring escape you know the kind of stuff movies are made out of and there are movies she escapes with the help of some insiders she goes and rallies an army to come and fight against the lords of Scotland but that too turns out to be a bit of a disaster she finds no relief and she is given um, very little alternative Speculations begin to also circulate that she was having an affair with another man. And lo and behold, through some strange events of actions, her second husband was assassinated. It was try they tried to cover it up by blowing up a building, a, gun a gunpowder explosion. They tried to put it off on. But when they found the body of her husband, he had no, bur he had no markings of a gunpowder explosion. They just found him dead. So, boy, the conspiracy wheels continue to roll. Lots of questions that still today there are no answers for. Mary was even accused and put on trial. Along with the trial, part of her trial was that she was part of a conspiracy because what happened about a month after her husband dies, she marries another guy, <laughs> right? Like I say, it's a soap opera just magnified. So here's Mary. She has the Queen of Scotland under her belt, but she's still thinking maybe England. After all, Henry's children are dying off, and maybe the opportunity will come. Well, when she comes to power, it is Elizabeth who is the Queen of England. And her and Elizabeth are cousins. They both are granddaughters of Henry VII of England. Mary hopes to get some support from her. They, they never met in their entire lives. They never met, but they exchanged letters and gifts and well wishes and Mary thought for sure if I get in trouble if things get really bad I'll go to England and Elizabeth will protect me and that's how bad things got she was she escaped Scotland to go to England but she was quickly identified she was arrested just for her own protection to begin with what do we do with her well this escaped Queen she has no place in England Scotland doesn't want her or doesn't want to have her alive there and what do we do with her so you can see her reign ends in uh, 1567 because the lords affirmed their power in removing her from the seat of the monarchy. It was passed to her infant son, James. Again, we'll come back to that story later. But Mary's in England, in prison in England. And she remains in prison for these 20 years. Remember, her cousin's the queen. But also, England at this time is determined to be non-Catholic. Elizabeth had established a peace and a reconciliation in the people of England to accept their Protestant Reformed churches and if you want to be Catholic, you be Catholic, but you don't do it in public. And that's the peace that they had. Elizabeth and Parliament had a great fear that if Mary, a Catholic, were allowed any privilege or place of authority in England, it could ruin the whole plan, right? Not hard to see that. So here's what they did. They kept her in house arrest for 20 years. She had 30 servants. She was served gourmet meals at her own request. 
She was able to go outside with a guard, I mean a multiple military guard, to ride, to enjoy outside, and to try and create something of a life of royalty for her in that setting. She was allowed to write letters, which later would be part of her downfall because the letters were written in code. And what do you think some of the letters implied? What would it take to free me? What would it take for me to become the Queen of England if Elizabeth dies? There was assassination worries about Elizabeth, that the Catholics thinking, if we can kill Elizabeth, we'll start a civil war and we'll proclaim Mary the Queen of England. I mean, you can see all the, even at a surface level, we see all the complications it creates. And we thought counting ballots in Arizona was a bad thing, right? So this whole conflict, Mary's in prison. Eventually, after those 20 years, she is executed. Executed at the order of parliament, beheaded. A pretty brutal beheading, too. It took, and you have to wonder what the, what the motives of the executioner were. It took three slices of the blade before he finally decapitated her. And Mary became quickly a target for her own protection in prison, but she became a target for many of the English who saw that we're prosperous. Why do we want Catholics back in charge, right? I mean, the whole political, again, the political religious environment is just hard for us to imagine, but it's interesting to, to learn about and read, I think. So there's Mary. Well, remember, Mary comes back to a Scotland that had these influences from Wycliffe in the late 1400s, Tyndale, who had, who had done the translation of the Bible into English, Martin Luther's reforms, Zwingli in Switzerland, Huss, Erasmus is one of those names we've put in this discussion, but he was one who wanted to stay in the Catholic Church saying, we can fix it from within. I will not separate. He, in, he, in, he engaged Luther and Zwingli and some of these others. He said, I will not engage in that. And he stayed in the Catholic Church, but he's an interesting, we'll come back to him too. We're not totally done with Erasmus of Rotterdam. The Church of England, again, Henry and, and a whole sort of experiences that bring about the Church of England. But now the Church of England is there. So the influence has spilt over into Scotland, of course, north of England on the island. And into that environment, a man named John Knox will step. You have to say one thing about the guy. He can knows how to grow a beard. John Knox, similar story. A Scot by birth and heritage. He was trained. I bet he never had to deal with a near microphone either. He was trained well in the uh, university system and the uh, religious system of the day. And he too in Scotland saw the need to transition from a Roman Catholic church priest where he was practicing and doing all the rights and duties of a Roman Catholic priest but again came in contact with being able to read the Bible and saw the problems it created. Very soon Knox became a voice uh, well, I got ahead of myself there. Knox became a voice in the Reformation movement of Scotland. His, his, we don't have a particular date and place and time, but historians pretty much all agree the early 1540s, he made a transition. We, we as Baptists might say he was born again, 
okay? Uh, but that's not the terminology the Presbyterians are going to use necessarily, or even the men of his time. But he became a, a voice and eventually a leader uh, in the Reformation movement of Scotland. Well, of course, that put him at odds with Mary. He's the leading voice of the Reformation. Mary's the leading Catholic voice. This is one painting intended to display uh, one of the many times that he met individually with the queen. And he had a boldness about him to meet with the queen, to try and direct her thoughts politically and religiously toward the Bible and what it would mean to the country, what it would mean to the people, what it would mean to their future, what it would mean to their peace. In this particular painting, Knox is in the room trying to dissuade her from marrying the man standing behind her, who was a Spaniard, who was going to bring more Catholic to Scotland, more Catholic thought, more Catholic power, more Catholic influence. We're not done with Spain yet. We've got to get to them eventually. We'll get there, I promise. And John Knox was a very strong voice. That you, you think things are bad now? You marry, you marry a Spaniard, and you watch how intense it's going to be. I mean, that was not a threat. That was just an evaluation of where the current landscape was, politically and religiously. But he had, he had several encounters with, with her as queen. Why did she just not execute him? It's a good question. Because she, even she knew that if Knox were either arrested, certainly imprisoned, and even more so executed, it would start a civil war. So she tolerated him to a point and was willing to hear him on behalf of the country, but she stood as firm in, in her Catholic intentions as Knox stood in his reform intentions for Scotland. Now remember, we're working our way toward the Presbyterians. Where does that all fit in? And indeed, as of course, as I mentioned earlier, the story will continue Mary will leave Scotland, at which point the uh, lords of the people will step up and take control and power until they can affirm that James will be their next king. And James, by the way, will be raised as a Protestant. He had been separated from his mother. James never knew his mother, really. Uh, he was separated from her very early in his life and raised up under Reformed and, and uh, Protestant teachings, which will play greatly as we move in this story in, after the first of the year. But in the, in the process, what Knox will do, he has an interesting story himself. He is eventually arrested, uh, you know, skirmishes, if you want to call them that, not full-fledged battles, but skirmishes, between the reformed-minded Scots and the Catholics were always something going on. And a group of them charged a castle. There in Scotland, a group of the reformers charged the castle and overtook the castle. Took control of the castle. Scotland had no answer for this. So they contacted France which did have the answer. We'll get our military there as quick as we can. Sure enough, France would send their ships up the coastline to um, the outlet where this castle was. They sent their troops in and overtook the castle. 
arrested everyone in the castle, including John Knox. He happened to be there really almost as a byproduct. He was not his intention to do anything other than to go there and to remind them of who they were and what they should do and what his voice carried great, great influence. What should they do now? They called for Knox. Knox came to visit, wound up staying a little longer than he thought, and all of a sudden the French are taking over the castle. They arrest Knox and the group of men. They take them prisoner. They take them back to France, where Knox had been and had traveled some, but they take him back to France. He is made a prisoner on a galley ship. Galley ship prisoners primarily not only did the servant work, they also did the rowing work, and that's where Knox was assigned. He was a galley slave rowing the boats. Five guys sitting side by side would launch an 18-foot oar to keep the boat rowing. And that's why he did that for 19 months. He was eventually released because of the influence of England to the French. They basically did something what we'd, we'd consider like a prisoner exchange. And the English got Knox out. This was during the reign of King Edward. Knox now has an opportunity to be in England, in London, where there's many Reformation things happening that he would like to see mimicked in his own country. And with his reputation from Scotland preceding him, he becomes a very influential voice in those early days, even of the Church of England. He stays there for a while. He stays there for four years until Edward dies. And remember who takes Edward's place? His sister Mary, a strong Catholic, who history will call Bloody Mary. So if you're not a Catholic, you're, Im you're immediately a target. Knox indeed escapes England, and he goes to Germany and meets with Luther, and he will spend time in Zurich and meet with Zwingli's successor, uh, Boltmann, and he gets really engaged with everything that is Reformation theology. Spent time in Geneva. I mean, he was just at all the places. But he longs to go back home, obviously. He goes back to Scotland. And once, re once there, reestablishes himself um, as a voice of the Reformation in Scotland and begins preaching again and begins proclaiming the need for a Bible-based Christianity, not a Catholic-based Christianity. And one of the decisions they had to make, different than England, who's in charge of the church? In England, it's the king or the queen. It's Elizabeth at this time. But not so in Scotland. Scotland was not going to make their monarch the head of the church in the way in which king, uh, England had done. So they were kind of the, the, the leading edge of the curve of saying churches should be able to establish their own rule and reign Within, a, within something that's different than what the Roman Catholics did. We'll not have a pope, we'll not have one head, we'll have multiple voices leading the churches. And that was called, uh, the, that's where the word Presbyterian comes from, so a little bit of language in our lesson, right? The Greek word in the scriptures is the word presbyteros, and it means an elder, a leader, a pastor. There's lots of ways you can define that term, and it almost depends on what denomination you're talking about is how you define it not a term we use a lot in our church. You do find Baptist churches that have elders, and you find Presbyterian churches that have elders. But that's where the word presby presbyteros is the word that 
becomes in English Presbyterian. You hear it there easy. The men who have these roles are called presbyters. They are the elders who govern the church. It's not governed by one man. It's governed by a group of men. And then they build from there, from the local church, up into, um, up into assemblies uh, that we'll see. This type of church in the Presbyterian model of a church would spread to, to the continent, and you see the countries there. And what the Presbyterian church has long battled with, probably, I think, more than any other Christian denomination we'll talk about, is something called ardor and order. Now, again, those are terms not as familiar to us as Baptists. The concept of ardor and order is what, what happens in the church. What is led by, that's the word ardor, what is led by the spirit? What's the spirit of your church? What's the attitude of your church? What's the, what's the mindset of your church? What's the biblical worldview of your church to serve the Lord and fulfill the, the call of Scripture? That's ardor. But the Presbyterians, because again, it's a product, I believe, of the culture in which these men grew up in, where there was disorder. And they were pretty quick to say, we need to take what we believe and go outside the walls and show it to the society around us. So they call that order. So the two discussions in the Presbyterian history of their denomination is ardor and order. What happens in the church? And what does the church do outside the walls of the church to influence society? Agreed, those are, those are still pretty influential thoughts today, and certainly in our church, the Baptist denomination. The Presbyterians established a liturgy. Now, that's a term that, again, is a little maybe foreign to you. That's a term that is used by several denominations, including Catholics, and including some Baptists, too, that simply means the order of worship. What do you do in a worship service? Think for a moment. What, what do we do in a worship service? What would you expect? If I said, here's a clean piece of paper, what do you expect to see in a worship service at Gospel Baptist Church in no particular order? Well, we're going to sing, right? We're going we're to read Scripture. We're going to preach. I mean, you see what I'm saying? What do you do in your worship service? That's a liturgy. And the Presbyterians developed two models for this, and I won't take the time to go in this, a good theology discussion for another time, another place. I'll just let you read the descriptions. The Presbyterians developed what's called the regulative principle. In other words, we will only do what we can find supported by in the Bible. Now, that, that sounds pretty common. That sounds pretty good to us as Baptists because we are Bible-centered in Presbyterians. Some of them are. Some Baptists are, too. Um, they will say, of course, the root word to regulative is regular. We will only make our services supported by what we find in the Bible. And if the Bible has examples for us or instructions for us, that's what we will do. Eventually, the opponents to that principle, called the normative principle, was developed. And they went the other extreme. They said, we will, we will do whatever we want to in our service, as long as it's not prohibited by Scripture. Okay? Let me, let me just mention some areas to you where this applies without going any deeper. Playing instruments in church. Now, believe it or not, in the history of the church, and in some denominations today, there are no instruments. All the singing is done a cappello. 
They don't believe that there should be instruments in the church. They can't find examples of it in the New Testament. You find plenty of examples in Psalms, but you don't find it in the New Testament. So see what I'm saying? They're, they're saying we will not have musical instruments because we don't see examples of it in the New Testament. The Jews were doing the Old Testament. That's the Jews. We're, look, we're only going to concentrate on the New Testament. That's the normative principle as it gets apply, applied into place. Another, another issue, dancing in church. Right? Now, as Baptists, that just makes us want to faint, I know. But, right? There are some, there are some denominations that dancing is a part of what they, what they would accept as worship. They even have something called a worship team that comes up to dance, a worship dance squad. You, you see, you don't have to think too far to think, you know, the church has wrestled with these issues for a long time. Not to mention the, t the style of music, the type of music, contemporary versus traditional hymns versus praise songs. I mean, you know, it, we all know where it's at. It's just, there's, all these discussions are continuing to go on. Where do you take your position? Well, if you're a Presbyterian, you pick one of these two and let that decide for you. All right, now I'm not here again to elaborate on that. I'm saying that's, that's kind of one of the things that got brought into the Presbyterian discussion. The, the Presbyterians have an authority system that builds from the congregations. A congregation is led by elders, not a pastor, but elders. And those elders often have assigned names or assigned duties. There might be a preaching elder, a teaching elder, an evangelical elder. The closest thing probably in our church, excuse me while I wrestle a little more of this, I need to get a new ear one of these days. Um, one of the things that we wrestle, uh, we wrestle, the one that we would see probably parallel might be deacons. And if you read much in the, in the Baptist mindset where this con contrast comparison is made, you will find Baptist churches that say we have elders. And that's a little different than the way we're structured. We'll get to some of that later. I hope I just get you thinking about it. They do have a clergy, so men are ordained, or in some cases women. They're ordained to the positions of pastor. They assemble in a synod. A synod's kind of like a regional group of churches together. And then they form there from there a general assembly, which is kind of like a national association. Their doctrine is driven by this. One of the things that drives a Presbyterian doctrine is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you see the dates when it was created in the 1640s. And this still drives a lot of the, of the mindset of, the, of, of several of the Reformed traditions. Um, and the things that they believed. It was generated primarily out of the Church of England, again, Westminster, uh, Westminster Abbey there in London. And uh, it, it, it was, again, an assembly of, of what, what were called the divines. Again, that's a term that's unusual to us, but it comes out of the Church of England. The Church of England calls their theologians divines. If you go back and read the introduction from the translators of the King James Bible, they will use that word because the men who translated the King James Bible were called divines, many of them, because of the position they held in the church. So again, you know, terminology becomes interesting in some of this. The Presbyterian influence is interesting historically. Let me introduce you to a Presbyterian in this community. Uh, I like this guy. He's kind of one of my heroes of the faith um, in, in the time in which he lived, uh, David Caldwell. Many of you probably will know Buffalo Presbyterian Church. How many times a week do we ride by Buffalo Presbyterian Church? David Caldwell was a pastor there. I was over visiting at Buffalo uh, probably last summer, I think now. 
and they still have a picture up. He's, he's one of their founding, you know, pastors there. That church was established in uh, 1754, something like that. I mean, that church has been around for a while. Here in Guilford County, he, he was the leading Presbyterian voice. He also pastored the Alamance Presbyterian Church in Alamance County, as we know it now. Um, and he, he rode back and forth between both congregations to pastor them. Along with that, he started what would be called the Log Cabin College, where he greatly influenced many of North Carolina's political and religious leaders. It's a, for the time period which he was doing this, those young men would grow up to become some of the most influential leaders in North Carolina state history. And they came right through Guilford County in the Log Cabin College under the, under the leadership of, of uh, David Caldwell. Um, Caldwell Academy on Horsepin Creek Drive is a byproduct of that name also. And so uh, he's an interesting fellow. He has a marker up for him at the Guilford Courthouse. And um, uh, you can see that when you're there. It's identified with the, simply the word preacher on it, uh, which I think is an expression to reflect his humility and his service for the Lord. Some Presbyterian beliefs, again, elder rule in local churches, five-point Calvinism. We're going to get to that later, too. Uh, we might even touch on it uh, probably a week after next. Uh, we'll talk about the five-point Calvinism. The Westminster Confession we've already mentioned. Um, how do they approach the Bible? Well, for the conservative Presbyterians, just like the conservative Baptists, they will use words in comments we are very familiar with. Inspired, inerrant, uh, verbal, plenary inspiration, terms that we'll get to later. Uh, they would use very similar terms to us. The liberal side of the Presbyterians, which every denomination has their liberal side, well, they say the Bible is a witness of Christ, but infallible words. And what you have to understand with that phrase that they use is it means there's lots of room for error and misinterpretation. Which part of the Bible is true and which part's not? I mean, we, it's, an, it's fallible. It is a fallible witness, or I'm sorry, I'm going to say it this way. It's an imperfect witness to the perfect Son of God. So they're going to give the Bible so much. Again, that's the liberal side of the Presbyterians. And they believe in a confessional, what we would call, you know, you have to make a confession of your faith, but more formal what we would call a doctrinal statement, they would say they're confessional. We would say we're doctrinal. This, there's more similarities and differences there, but they have a statement of faith, basically. They do practice, and we haven't come across this term, I don't think yet, pedo-baptism, which means they will baptize infants and children. And they see that as part of the formula for being saved, but not necessarily a requirement to be saved. You know, our doctrinal stand as Baptist and as conservative Baptists would be you profess faith in Christ and then you're baptized as a testimony of your witness of new life in Christ, right? That doesn't, that doesn't offend anybody in here. Not so with the Presbyterians. They just say, well, look, as long as you were baptized somewhere, someplace, sometime by somebody, even if you were a week old, that's okay. You got baptized. So they really don't tie baptism to profession like the Baptist doctrine will. The Presbyterian Trail goes from Knox, uh, there in the uh, 1500s, to some others, some other men, Presbyterian, that were born in Scotland, came to America. William Tennant, he began a log cabin uh, college uh, also in the uh, Northeast. 
Uh, John Witherspoon, maybe a name you remember from history, he's the only ordained minister to sign the Declaration of Independence uh, and um, uh, was also a president at Princeton University. Uh, great scholar, uh, wrote some of, I like quoting Witherspoon. Uh, he has some, some great insights to America's founding and to its purpose as a nation under God. Uh, so there's lots of things you can read in Presbyterian doctrines that you, and, and teachings that you might go, you know, yeah, I can jump on board with that. Uh, with where we're at. Some Presbyterians in America, you may know some of these names from history. See if any of them surprise you. Charles Finney uh, was part of the Second Great Awakening. Peter Marshall was one of the leading pastors in Washington, D.C., influenced, influenced uh, presidents and was a great writer uh, in the mid-1900s. Y'all remember the 1900s? Anybody here old enough to remember the 1900s? D. James Kennedy. Is that a name anybody knows? I'm just curious. Brother Lee knows. I, as a younger man, and still today, I watched a little bit of him uh, in the last week or so. I and Dr. Kennedy's passed on to the Lord now. But boy, I enjoyed hearing him preach. And boy, I don't care if he's Presbyterian or not, he could preach. Um, down in Florida, but he was core Presbyterian. Uh, did y'all know J. Vernon McGee? Yeah, I heard him today. I listened, he listened to his Sunday sermon today. I listened to it on the way home um, on Jezebel. Uh, J. Vernon McGee was ordained Presbyterian. Now again, he said that He's at conservative side. We would probably also say of J. Vernon McGee, he would match up with us from a theological position of dispensationalism. And again, that's another topic for another day. R.C. Sproul just passed away a couple of years or so ago, also a very influential uh, writer. I've got a few books uh, that, I, that I appreciate greatly. He wrote a book on the holiness of God that I still have, and, 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 and I think it's just a great insight. Tim Keller, a very popular contemporary pastor today in American religious uh, landscape, is Presbyterian too. We will find many things with the Presbyterians that we would say, okay, I can lock arms with you on that. But again, like all denominations, there's the liberal side and the conservative side. So let me do that to you very quickly before we finish. The Presbyterian Church in America, of America, the PCA churches, they're called, are the more conservative group of Presbyterians. Simple statement to reflect that. Faithful to the scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, again, that grew out of Scotland, and obedient to the Great Commission. You take that word reformed out of there, and I'd say I'm with you on board all of that. Um, so that's PCA, and you'll see churches around, they'll have on their little signs that says we're a PCA church. The other group is actually the larger group in the United States is a Presbyterian Church USA. They are the more liberal group. If you don't take the time to read some of this, I'll try to hit it very quickly. The mission uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. Let me, let me read where I got this statement in here, and it echoes so well what our pastor preached on this morning. The Presbyterian church is the more liberal, and so they gladly open up their doors to the homosexual agenda, the LGBTQ agenda, all of that. Um, and so I wanted to show you an example of that, maybe an extreme example, but it is, it's, it's under their banner, the mission of the more light Presbyterians. Oh, we know more now than the Christians back then did, right? is to work for the full participation of LGBT people of faith in life, ministry, and the witness of the Presbyterian Church. That's a statement directly from them, a quote directly from them. A, a documentary film that was put out by the Presbyterian Church USA called Out of Order, a groundbreaking feature documentary revealing the complex and painful struggles faced by lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer faith, not, not congregants, but leaders in the church. So, again, the liberal side is very open to all of that, for sure. And they, 
um, I will gladly fly the gay flag along with other things that they'll promote. So here we are, right? Here we are back in Europe again. We start with Wycliffe in the late 1400s, who in England begins to say a Bible in the people's language. John Huss picks up his teachings, and in Eastern Europe, Prague becomes a central focus of much of the teachings of Wycliffe and what would begin to be the early seeds of the Reformation. Luther in 15, early 1500s, 1517, uh, begins that in Germany, Central Europe, of course, uh, complemented by Jurek Zwingli in Switzerland, in Zurich, and he begins to promote and, and teach and preach um, Reformed theology, as, as it will call it generally, but basically biblical teaching. There's Erasmus, the guy who wanted to, who saw the reforms were necessary, I agree, but I'm going to stay in the church and do it, not get outside the church. And we'll come back to him later. He plays an important role in something else. The Church of England under Henry VIII, and then uh, from, from that, uh, we have to mention Tyndale, William Tyndale, uh, who was a translator of the Bible, had to escape England uh, to go to Europe. He was finally caught up with by the Catholic Church, and they executed him in Belgium. And then we add to that John Knox, who brings the Reformation to the voice, who gives voice to the Reformation in Scotland. And from there comes to America to begin the Presbyterians. Where do you find the Presbyterians today? Uh, a large number of them, have certainly when they first came to America, were in the Northeast. Uh, Pennsylvania, because it's Quaker, and we'll talk about the Quakers later too, um, will have uh, a large number of the uh, Presbyterian churches there. The Northeast has a lot. We certainly have some here in the South. Uh, and there are some pretty influential Presbyterian churches here in the South. It's all about Buffalo Presbyterian. Um, so there's lots there. Next week, we'll introduce you to John Calvin, and we'll talk about the Reformation in France. What happened in that Catholic country uh, was very different than what happened in some other places. And we'll talk about France and maybe a little byproduct of that about Spain, too. I remind you as you go, uh, we're supporting the Amy and Jed Appel and their family serving the Lord in the South Pacific Islands there. Uh, we want to be praying for them as we support them. And I've encouraged you because this will, this will, in essence, be our last time to support them before Christmas. By the time we send it and get to them, it'll be Christmas. So if you can give or give a little extra for this month, it'll go to support a great family um, and uh, the work they're doing. Well, we've got some great things ahead. I hope it's uh, reminding you a little bit of where we've come from as a, as, a, as a people. And we'll get to the Baptist, I promise you. They're on the horizon too, but we've got to cross a few more bridges before we do that. Well, let's pray and we'll go. Father, thank you for our day and our time to... Look at these events in history. They, they are fascinating from a human level. Uh, but when we look carefully, we see, as our pastor reminded us this morning, we see your invisible hand moving kings and queens and establishing and raising up voices of biblical truth. Uh, we cannot help but read and understand history without seeing your hand in it. And I pray that you'll remind us of that as we continue through this study. Bless our evening as we return home, our anticipated week ahead, and may all that's done be for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great evening and a great week ahead.